This is an ABC podcast. May I confess to being a little bit excited about today's episode of The Minefield because it's a topic that I love, or at least I think I love, if it means what I think it means. And sometimes Scott has a different understanding of what the topic means than what I do. But I, anyway, I think I love the topic. So sometimes? Sometimes. Well, yeah. sometimes? Some, no, sometimes it's clear. That's Scott Stevens, by the way, who's just broken the fourth wall. Well, Lead Ali's my name. The show is The Minefield. It's about negotiating ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. I'm excited because I think I love the topic. I'm excited because... I think we might accidentally have stumbled upon doing a sequel to last week without actually meaning to do it. Yeah, I don't, I think that's I, exactly right. You think that's, it's, it's funny when it works out like that. Um, yeah. The other thing I have to confess I'm very excited about is that our guest this week is the director of something called the Sydney Policy Lab. And I love the idea of a policy lab. Like just this image that it conjures in my mind of people in white coats scurrying around, dropping substances on bits of policy to see what they bring forth and then scientifically determining what policy should be. I just think it's such the a image wonderful of which, phrase. Though, yes. The image of which, though, could not be further removed from the topic for today. In fact, yes, it's, exactly. That's it's, right. the image that one gets when one thinks about policy labs is diametrically opposed to what has got us all excited. Oh and God. you know what? I think one of the most wonderful things that that we've by and large lost because of the ossification of many forms of – many of the public forms, many of the obvious or ritualized forms of democracy – uh, but which continues to live in the hearts and minds of some very, very, very fine, but you know, slightly sort of off-center political theorists. I think Ellen Lanmore is a particularly good example of this. Our guest for today, who I'm not going to mention quite yet, uh, is another good example of this. But there was from the beginning, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, there's a powerful sense that what matters for democracy is, in the words of someone like Walt Whitman, it's spiritual substance. I mean, elections are important symbolically because it makes one's chest swell. But what makes democracy democracy is its spiritual mm. substance. Others, I think really powerfully here, someone like John Dewey, even even Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was no great fan of democracy, but non- nonetheless, they both praised democracy's experimental quality, that you don't know... What works? You don't know what it is until you try something and then you learn from its failures. And I think I I really like the experimental dimension of it. And it means that what makes democracy live is the extent to which we keep trying things that try to make it exist not just as an idea or as a form of governance, but as a moral reality. So it's that experimental quality that I guess I really do. And that's actually getting us much closer to the topic. Yes. So as you've kind of been teasing out, it takes us to what I do like about this topic in that the very notion I'm gesturing towards as, you know, politics and policy as something that is made scientifically, you know, you more or less divine from the incontrovertible objective data that's put in front of you, all that sort of stuff. I've often worried about this, not just because of its, uh, and by the way, I'm not saying that's what the Sydney Policy Lab does, but just the the connotations of the the sort of language. But I think I've worried about this, not just because of the positivist overtones of it, but because I feel like sometimes it misses the point. 
And I, and I think this is a, a thing that progressive politics particularly does in that in trying to achieve some kind of imagined utopic goal of some description, even if that goal as progressive politics increasingly um, is articulating isn't really an end goal rather than sort of the elimination of something like discrimination or something like that. Mm. It can, I think it has a tendency to overlook the things that actually make life worth living for people. So in other words, in, in, in trying to achieve some kind of measurable state of improvement or perfection, I think we do have a risk of ignoring the things that actually matter to individual people's lives. By the way, when I say individual people, I don't mean in an individualistic sense. I just mean the stuff that exists on the grounds and in the hearts yeah. of people. And maybe the question is whether or not politics actually has anything it can say to or about those things. Maybe the problem is that politics is now something that exists in a realm that's divorced from the things that really matter to people. And that might be one of the reasons that you see disillusionment um, yeah. in politics spring up. I, I wonder if I'm being too abstract here. Should you, are, are well, you, making, well, should you make the no, topic more concrete? I don't think, yes, I, I will in a moment, but I don't think you're being too abstract. And I think you've also... So you know those things uh, maybe that one enjoys... Maybe one enjoys a little bit too much. And if you think too hard about the deeper problems associated with that thing that you like, it just all gets a little bit too messy. So, I mean, yes. I don't like Wagner. I don't like Wagner, okay? I don't like Wagner. I know a lot of people who love Wagner and the pact, the moral pact that they've made with themselves is they will listen to Tristan und Isolde, but they will never, ever, ever think about the Nazi implications yeah. or the Nazi trajectory, okay? Um, what well, you're talking quote about, Heidegger. Yes, yes, <laughs> thank you. Yes, and and then just presume that there wasn't an error or presume that maybe there was an internal limit where Heidegger was forced into saying what he said, making the compromises that he did as a kind of, you know, necessary but dirty, uh, but you know, but inevitable instance of dirty hands. Mm. Um I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right that so much of the discourse and the practice of modern politics, and I don't think it's just modern politics. I would like to put in moral philosophy in a moment, but let's just stick with politics for a second, is so divorced from what really does matter, the kind of language that people really use to describe what they value most, what they love most, what they fear most, that even though the goal, the aim, the telos may well be incredibly noble, this kind of endless process of perpetual inclusion and the elimination of all forms of discrimination, exclusion, and so on. I mean, those are very, very, very fine goals. There's no, there, there's no doubting that. And yet the language that's used of justice, of equity, of equality, of rights, of fairness, this isn't real language. And, and each one of those words not only has a degree of sterility about it, but it also has a remove from what might just be called everyday language or the, the vernacular in which people express what really matters to them, what they really love, what they really hope for, what they really fear. The problem then – so I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. And in fact, that's what we're talking about today. I'm with you. As soon as I say that though, of course, there is a form of politics that appeals or that purports to appeal in the vernacular that people use 
to describe what they want, what they hope for, what they long for, what they uh, what they fear they've lost or what they're afraid of losing. Which Donald Trump lasted, right? Yeah. There are forms of, let's just call it, a kind of bastardized vernacular politics that appeals without hesitation, without shame to fears. And in fact, deepens those fears, makes the past seem rosier than it was, makes everyday life seem much more communally integrated than it in fact is, and makes the those who have come, those who the other side of politics wants to include, seem much more like thieves in the night who are trying to take away from us what we love most. So this is one of those topics, Waleed, my passion for it burns deeply. The, the, the longing to reconnect politics to moral philosophy with the way that people really live, uh, really live, the kind of the scenes within which politics, I think, becomes a moral reality. Those episodes, those moments of encounter between people that really can be described as moral encounter, not like the ticking of a clock and a terrorist strapped to a chair. Those yeah. moments of real encounter, not these sterilized scenarios. But at the same time, as soon as you say it, you realize that everything that is good, everything that's worth arguing for and worth fighting for, it always has its imposter. It always has its bastardized competitor. So I think it's probably worth stating from the outset that while this is what we're talking about, we're completely aware, my God, we're completely aware of the ways in which these things can be perverted, the imposters that try to fill this otherwise very, very valuable space. But also that these things always exist in tension. Yeah, it's true. So you, for example, just said well, what the removal of all forms of discrimination is, is a noble goal, right? Mm. And yeah, that sounds like something yeah, yeah. you couldn't argue with. But mm. if you take it really literally, you could never accept it because no. all forms of discrimination would include preferential love for family, mm. for example. No one would seriously suggest that that's a bad thing, would they? No, there are moral philosophers who do. Well, okay then, sure. Moral philosophers might <laughs> exactly. suggest. Which is, which is the point. Which, which is the point. point. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I guess right. what's interesting about this, and you know, the reason I consider this a sequel of sorts to what we were talking about last week is, to some extent, that's what last week's show was about, right? That, that you can take these sort of high-level macroscopic views of what needs to happen. Right, vaccine mandate there. But mm. in the process, what you overlook are the things that exist on the ground. It's sort of the, the, the stuff of people's lives that actually provide resources for you that might be better than the macroscopic sort of data-driven stuff that you reach for. And you gave the example of various mechanisms that might have encouraged vaccination in a more enduring and effective way that wasn't divisive rather than the sort of, you know, the black and white policy determination uh, type approach. So I think this is kind of just an extension of that idea. That's why I think this is a, a sequel. But the thing to remember about what, what I think makes this interesting is those things always exist in such a way that an expression of them that is really just a metre or two away from where you are very quickly goes awry. Mm, so, so it's very hard, I think, to say that the stuff that really matters can kind of become a, an endless guiding principle because you're very, very close at any given moment of straying into some kind of disastrous terrain, not just because things become bastardized in sort of the Trump example, but because these are deeply held impulses, right? Mm. So the discrimination mm. example that I gave is 
I think, an instructive one. It's easy now to say there are points in time where discrimination becomes a real problem and goes awry, but it's also impossible for us to live without it. Maybe politics is the task of balancing, of trying to figure out where the limits are. Unfortunately, there's no objective way of doing that. How exactly you determine or delineate those limits, this becomes sort of the stuff of subjective moral slash ethical slash political judgment, don't they? Um, uh, Discrimination is also one of those words that now belongs in that kind of sterile pantheon of progressive terms, whereas in everyday life, in normal vernacular, there are critical, crucial forms of discrimination, or as you put it there towards the end of judgment, that I think are absolutely indispensable for anything that, you know, that tries to claim for itself the status of, of a moral community. But I, I do wonder, though, I do wonder if we just take a quick step back. I mean, one of the reasons that I think politics might have begun to distance itself or become critically or fatally even detached from what we could call the conditions, the, uh, the, uh, the things that really matter in everyday life, is, is not just the professionalization of politics and the raft of advisors and media people and, and so on, the kind of the constant manicuring or crafting of a Teflon or sterile or relatively inoffensive or deliberately offensive message that is meant to have very little resemblance to the concerns of everyday life. But it's, it's always struck me, I think we've talked about this before, that two political theorists who could not in many respects be further apart, a conservative like Michael Oakeshott and a progressive like Sheldon Wolin, both revive this, what I think is the proper image of what democratic politics is, which is this pastoral image that what politics does is it cultivates the conditions of the lives of a group of people whom chance or choice have thrown together. And I think that idea of cultivating the conditions so that there are things that politicians do and say that either spoil the ground or that seed the ground, that either raise the crops or that water the crops, that either allow people to speak to one another and to recognize one another more intelligibly, more intelligibly, more graciously, or cause them to see one another with greater hostility and contempt and jaundice. And I think that, that idea of politics, democratic politics, as the conditions within which we cultivate the capacities of mutual recognition, the capacity to love and to be able to describe why it is that we love, the things that we love. That, for me, begins to elevate everyday life, the concerns of normal people, ordinary worries. It kind of elevates that not so much to a given. I think there are very few things that are genuinely good in the world that you can describe as simply given. They're just there. I think what tends to be there are maybe not always, but maybe things that we need to reform and chasten and kind of move away from and think and speak better about. Everyday life isn't so much something that's just there. It's, it's a task. It's something that we try to achieve together. And so there are certain things that are part of everyday existence that shouldn't be. There are other things that are part of an extension of what we love and value. Other vistas, other horizons, other people that need to belong in our circles of friendship and mutual obligation and solidarity who aren't. 
and, and yet belong there and are part of the common vernacular. So I think that's where it's probably better to think of politics cultivating the conditions within which the task of everyday life, the things that most value in everyday life can be achieved and realized and extended and blossom and flourish, uh, rather than simply appealing to the basest of fears and then maybe pushing those fears deeper than they otherwise would have gone. We are talking at a fairly abstract level, though, and I, I wonder whether or not such things as you're describing are really possible within a liberal political order. The reason I say that is that liberalism's genius is in its management of differences differences of opinion and, and of diversity, right? So by reducing politics really just to the policing of the harm principle, irrespective of how much it actually works that way in practice, but the idea of that, mm. that really it's a position of government non-interference in the absence of harm, what you do is you allow the sort of continued expression of very diverse systems of value and allocations of value. That makes it hard really for politics to have anything to say about the things of everyday life because those things of everyday life become more and more subject to contestation. And and the whole point of liberalism really is that politics should not be engaging in that realm. It should be doing everything it can to stay out. That, that's sort of designated as private. So I'm interested in your description of what a liberal politics that is attentive to and, and is focusing mostly on the things that matter to people in the granularity mm. of their lives. I don't know what it is, and I, I, don't, I wonder if you do. Yeah, yeah. I believe I do. Um, I am keen to get to the guest, but let me just say two things really, really quickly. First of all, I think this is, as we've seen over and over and over again over the course of the pandemic, I think we are seeing the revival of, certainly the revival of the sense of the importance of the local in politics. I mean, never have state premiers been more important. Never have local councillors been more important. Never have our local representatives, I think, been more important. Um, that's a that's a truism, though. I, I, I like how you said that what liberalism does is it essentially reduces itself to policing the harm principle. But that's also a form of ossified language. Take someone like John Dewey, arguably the kind of political progenitor of modern liberalism. The way that he described it is, so what democratic politics does is it relies upon what he described as the proliferation of everyday practices that enable, that allow for democracy to become a moral reality. Now, here's, so this actually goes back, believe it or not, Willie, to the conversation that we had with David Runciman a couple of years ago about whether children should be given the vote. And one of the, one of the arguments, I think one of the powerful arguments that we made is that you are learning democracy. You are learning the fundamental virtues or practices that make democracy a moral reality in school already whenever you learn things like deference compromise, turn-taking, being able to lose and being able to lose well, having patience with one another, not talking over another person. These, these are kind of, these are fundamental forms, even if you don't like John Dewey. Say George Orwell, he described those forms of linguistic practices as everyday, or as his precise term was, common decency. Wait, this but... is what makes a people good. And so it seems to me, Waleed, that when politicians lose well, when they, 
when they exemplify, even just in the form of democratic politics, when they exemplify forms of turn-taking, compromise, deference, politeness, then there is a very, very important, and and, uh, did I say losing well? There is a very important, I think, form of seeding or cultivating of the ground, the territory of everyday life that really can't be minimized. But that doesn't mean they're addressing the things that matter to people. No, but it's cultivating the conditions within which what matters to people can be heard, within which, just taking another step back, you know, there's this great division within political philosophy between Isaiah Berlin's two modes of freedom. There's either negative freedom or positive freedom. Mm. One of the great critiques that I've always loved is that of a sociologist named Axel Honneth, who said, but very, very few of us in everyday life live with either pure negative freedom or pure positive freedom. He said the real stuff of everyday life is what he called social freedom. I almost never achieve anything that I want either by preventing or by simply doing it because I am able uh, or in the absence of, of some kind of prohibition or some kind of coercion or constraint to me achieving what I want. He said instead, everything that's worth achieving, I do with other people. I do as a process of compromise, of relationality, of mutuality. And that, I think, again, that's getting very, very close to the concerns of everyday life uh, around which a great deal of modern politics, unfortunately, has very little to say. Um, this is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now. But you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice. Our guest is Professor Mark Steers. He's director of the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. Before that, he was professor of political theory at the University of Oxford. But in between those two things, he was senior advisor and chief speechwriter to Ed Miliband, the former leader of the British Labour Party. He's also the author of a really wonderful recently published book called Out of the Ordinary, How Everyday Life Inspired a Nation and How It Can Again. Mark, thanks so much for joining us on The Minefield. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm sitting here with my white lab coat and my bubbling beakers of green liquids. All right. Excellent. So so why don't you tell us a little something briefly about the Sydney Policy Lab? So the idea of the lab was uh, yours, Scott. You're, you're absolutely right. Experiment, creativity, trying to do politics differently. And particularly what we're interested in is is mixing together ideas and people and, you know, places that often don't get mixed together. So, uh, you know, sometimes those mixings are explosive, uh, but sometimes they, you know, create new newness. And that's what we're all about is if, if you're trying to crack open problems, uh, then one of the ways to do it is to get people who don't usually to talk to each other, uh, to talk to each other, hopefully in a safe environment. And that's the idea of a lab. All right. So, so it seems to me that we're at the intersection then of a real dilemma. On the one hand, Mark, a big part of your professional experience is both in professional politics and in ivory tower academia. No disrespect to Oxford there, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, the other problem I suppose that we have is that not since the second world war has everyday life, if we can call it that, been disrupted to a greater extent than during the current pandemic. So so it seems to me that you've got this twin experience in academia and in sort of highest level professional politics. 
And then we've got the thing that everyday life is now the thing that we're longing for. And the greatest role that politics can play in the current environment is just to get out of the way and to let everyday life come back, even under sort of slight pandemic conditions. Uh, but through all that, you've been taking a great deal of your instruction of a series of, from a series of public intellectuals, writers, playwrights, photographers, artists in the pre- and post-war period that you think have something really instructive to say about the way that we can think about everyday life, even in conditions of potential devastation, catastrophe, loss, bereavement. So there's the setup. There I've laid out the parameters of the discussion. Where is it that you want to take us? I mean, it's a brilliant setup. I mean, I guess when I first went into professional politics, which is you know just over 10 years ago, you know, I was totally naive. Uh, you know, I just wanted to play my part and, uh, you know, wanted to be on a winning side, as most people in politics do. And I remember getting on a bus going from Oxford to London, which is the move from academia to politics, um, you know, physically. Uh, and I was on the bus reading a whole raft of opinion poll data that the Labour Party's uh, opinion pollsters had given me to try and get my head into the issues, you know, so they gave me like 50 or 60 pages of your focus group data and your mass opinion poll data. And I was reading it, reading it, reading it, trying to work out what was going on. And what became really apparent is they'd ask all these questions of people about what they valued in life. And then they'd asked all these questions about you know, what they thought of political parties. And the valued in life stuff was amazingly uniform. I mean, people of all different backgrounds, age groups, you know, geographies, racial, ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, they all basically said the same thing which is that they cared most about their family and their friends and their neighborhoods. You know, they cared about the everyday aspects of their lives, you know, how safe and secure they felt. Um, but most importantly, you know, whether they felt as if they had meaningful relationships with people uh, and were able to sort of act on those relationships. And then all of the political data, the party political data, had almost nothing to say about any of that. You know, these were all, uh, you know, opinions about highfalutin issues, you know, either abstract policy issues or big picture values issues. And there was just this extraordinary disconnect, I thought, between what people were telling the pollsters that they cared about and what the political strategists or you know, professional politicians thought that they ought to care about. You know, these two things were just totally different. And so I got to London, this is a true story. I got to London, and I went to our, you know, the chief polling person at the Labour Party at that time, who's a, a great guy, really smart guy. And I said, well, you must have noticed this discrepancy between what people say they actually care about and what political strategists and politicians want them to care about. So you know, what are we meant to do about that? And he just looked at me as if I was an absolute idiot and said, well, you know, there are kind of things that politics cares about and there are things that ordinary people care about and they're just different. Uh, and I kind of said, what? Uh, can we close the gap between those two? And he said, well, no, we can't. You know, there are certain things that professional politics has nothing to say about, you know, nothing interesting to engage with. And we're just going to have to deal with that or cope with it. And, you know, off he went. And he didn't mean any harm by that. Uh, and he hadn't intended to be rude. He just thought he was speaking a truth uh, that politics deals with one bundle of issues and everyday life deals with other bundles of issues. And that was, I say, over 10 years ago. And I think what we've learned since is we can't sustain that distinction anymore. Because like, if you try and run your politics in a way that has nothing to say to the concerns of everyday people's everyday lives, then you end up in the madness that is Donald Trump or the Brexit campaign or bits of one nation politics here in Australia. You know, You end up with these sort of pathological attempts on the part of politicians to find their way back into ordinary life 
whilst mainstream professional politicians like get left beside, you know, on the side of the road. So my kind of campaign ever since, you know, for the last you know, decade or so has been, what can we do to get mainstream politicians more engaged and more thoughtfully reflective on the things that actually matter to people in the lives that they're leading? I'm scared to say this, Mark, but I might be with your mate on this. <laughs> because, I mean, the disjunction, that disconnection that you talk about, I think is really interesting and important. But what I find interesting is the presumption that it shouldn't be there. That politics, particularly if you're talking about national politics, should be dealing with the things that matter most to people, which kind of presumes that politics should be among the most important things in, in people's lives. It may well be and I'm just playing with this, there are other institutions or even other levels of politics that are best suited to be part of that. And that the debauchery that you've identified and that we've discussed of, you know, the Trump-Brexit style of politics um, that wants to play in this space, perhaps its very sin is not merely that it's debauched, it's doing a kind of parody of talking about what matters to people, but that it thinks its job is to play in that space in the first place and that we might yeah, no, no. all be better off if politics understood that its job is to talk about very important things that people don't say matter in their lives and that's just its job and that's fine and it's still an important job but it's not there to engage the, you know, the synapses of people. Um, maybe local councils should be doing that or maybe local councils are failing to do that and there's an argument that they should be attending to community life more and all of that sort of thing. But I'm not sure I would want a, a federal government or a national government in, in, say, Britain's case to be trying to make my community more cohesive. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see the, the the strength of that argument. It's definitely something we should be worried about, you know, government getting its nose into business that it shouldn't get its nose into. The, the worry that I have, I guess, in response is that governments end up doing it anyway. And if we're not conscious about why they're doing it and how they're doing it, if we pretend they're not doing it, uh, then that's when we get into the biggest kind of trouble. So like two quick thoughts on that. You know, the first is a philosophical thought. So my one of my favorite bits of Aristotle is when he says, well, look, the greatest science of all is the science of politics, not because it should be, but because politics always ends up telling us what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. Right. And I think we've seen that most dramatically during the pandemic, which is, you know, huge interventions into every aspect of people's lives, uh, and often with incredible little sort of reflection on why or what the implications of that are going to be. I mean, just to give the most obvious example, you know, my six-year-old is currently not able to go to school because the schools are closed here in New South Wales, you know, and they're closed because the public health officials tell us they ought to be. But you know, like, what impact does it have for six-year-olds around the world, not just here, not to be able to hang out with their mates at school, not to be able to go to the parks or playgrounds at the end of the school day, not to have those kind of crazy experiences you have in class, not just learning stuff, you know, but dealing with all the other people who are in that class with you, some of whom annoy you, some of whom excite you. You know, what we've had, I think, over the last 18 months or so, are governments regulating, restricting. I mean, again, I'm not saying they're right or wrong in those regulations or restrictions, but they haven't actually had a conversation with us about what those interventions in everyday life mean, because they're not used to talking about everyday life. They pretended that they don't need to talk about it. And as a result, I think we've had a sort of myopic focus 
on, you know, case data, the 11 o'clock press conference, you know, epidemiology. And what we haven't had is the kind of rich, diverse conversation about what all of this means for families and communities and neighborhoods, you know, and kids who are just trying to grow up. Except that I remember right at the beginning of this when Scott Morrison was being urged to close schools. Remember that? Remember when that was a popular mm, thing yeah. to do? Yeah. And his response was, be careful what you wish for, because you could be ruining a year of kids' education. And all. So he, he put that out there. But I think what was being expressed in that moment, so I would conceive of it differently to the way you've described it. I wouldn't conceive of it as they're being inattentive to the things that matter to people like, you know, kids' school experiences. I would have described that as they were actually quite attentive to the thing that mattered most to people in those moments, and that is being healthy and being kept alive. We'll worry about school later, but th this is a particular scenario where in the hierarchy of needs, it's obvious where the priority falls. Now, we can have an argument about whether we would reach different conclusions on how that balance is to be struck as the pandemic's gone on. But I, I wouldn't regard that as an inattentiveness as such. Like I, I, I in some ways, I'm, I'm quite impressed when I actually sit down and listen to what the public health officials are saying about the subtlety with which they have considered some of these things. It often leads them to a blunt place, but it is a pandemic, which is a fairly blunting experience. And so I, I wonder whether there's a danger here in extrapolating a sort of political principle or a, a principle of the way politics is and should be practiced um, I mean, from just, an uh, emergency uh, scenario sorry, like yeah, a pandemic. Yeah. I, I was just, this is why I, I go back to the Second World War experience as a sort of you know, metaphor or comparator, because I think for the first year or two of the Second World War, which for the you know, UK lasted five years, um, it was very much you know of the kind that we just described. So you know the government basically thought, oh God, we've got to win a war. Uh, we can't think too much about anything else. So like everything went into military strategy and you know uh, munitions uh, and you know the whole concentration was on the you know the sort of professional job of war fighting. And that of course was tremendously important, especially because the British were losing um, you know the first part of that uh, of the war. But what they realised in the middle part and then into the second part of the war was actually, if you're not hugely attentive to people's everyday lives, then they lose hope and they lose meaning uh, and they lose, you know, a kind of focus on what all this is for in the first place. And, you know, what I discovered when I was doing the research for the book is that there was just a big wake-up call in the UK in around about 1941, early parts of 1942, when they suddenly thought, actually, the home front matters as much as the military front. And by that, they meant, you know, how are people actually dealing with the stresses and the strains? You know, what's happening to their kids? What's happening to their community life? Um, and look, I think that we've been, if I'm honest, I think you not know, just here in Australia, but around the world, we've been really bad at the, learning that lesson in the pandemic. And we've just been so focused on that. We've got to beat the virus that we've lost sight of the fact that people keep themselves going in the everyday and you need to be giving them treasured moments. You know, like, you know, you can't do what we have done, which is not allow people to have funerals or weddings or relationships, not allow their kids to see each other without it taking a huge toll on them, you know, psychologically, spiritually, morally. And, you know, uh, hopefully the pandemic will end, you know, quicker than the Second World War ends. So perhaps we don't need to learn the lesson as urgently as we did then. Um, but through the war, the British actually really did realise that, no, we've got to celebrate 
the local and the small and these treasured moments of life in order to beat the Nazis. You know, there's a paradox there. It's not just by getting guns on people's backs and better quality tanks and airplanes in the air. It's actually by giving people meaningful experiences in their own lives that we're going to have the strength and the morale uh, to get through this incredible challenge that we face. That voice belongs to Mark Steers, who's the director of the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, we'll add these my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Um, it is worth pointing out, Waleed, this is no criticism of you, but one of the reasons that there was such controversy surrounding Scott Morrison's reticence to close the schools was that the issue of responding strongly enough to the pandemic was an issue that had already been given a kind of ideological inflection, not least because of the extent to which Donald, then-President Donald Trump was minimizing it. And it's just interesting to me, the more that I reflect back over the last 18 months, while there is a great deal that can be said against the kind of libertarianism carelessness, the disregard, and just the sheer stupidity surrounding ignorance concerning public health orders that's been displayed on certain aspects of the right, it really strikes me that there is a fair degree of culpability on the part of the kind of chest-thumping ideological flexing that's taken place among more resolutely progressive or supposedly progressive corners who think that the way that you demonstrate your pro-science progressive bona fides is by being as strict as you possibly can when it comes to lockdowns, public health orders, and taking absolutely every precaution in order to save life. Now, again, I'm not saying that there's not a virtue in that, and I think the particular care that has been taken towards the protection, especially of the elderly, is one of the most important, one of the most noble, one of the most significant things that's taken place over the last 18 months. But I think that there's been a kind of ideological overlay onto the human dimension of the pandemic uh, that hasn't helped matters further. And this is I want to shift, I mean, either of you can say whatever you want, but I I just want to shift things ever so slightly, though, because I think one of the ways where the concerns of the everyday have been most resolutely disregarded in a great deal, both of politics, but also in moral philosophy, is in the kind of language that we use. There is a wonderful moment in one of Chekhov's letters where he says, the ideologies of the right or the left mean nothing to me. No ism captures my soul. He says, my holy of holies is the sanctity of the human body and the love of the neighbor. And for him, it's that preciousness, it's that location of the value of the body, the dignity, the care for one's neighbor, the, the, the love for those, for those who are most proximate, That's the thing that relativizes all pretensions of all isms on either side. And that, I guess, resonates with me, not just politically speaking. I I just think our politicians have almost become pantomimes of ideological positions rather than genuinely responsive to the kind of language, the vernacular 
that really does communicate to people. But I guess here's where I want to also join that to the contention of Iris Murdoch, the moral philosopher whom I love, who said that the most important dimension of moral discourse is the attention that we give to adjectives. The adjectives that we use to describe other people have a more determinant effect in the way that we see those people and the way that others see those people than the great, the loaded, deontological, utilitarian, or whatever other term that we use. And it just seems to me that if we then allowed, both politically and morally speaking, our use of adjectives, for instance, to shake themselves free from the isms of utilitarianism or deontology or from the ideological pretensions of the right or the left, it seems to me that that would open up a realm of discourse, a realm of moral and political reasoning that would bring us closer to the concerns of the everyday, that would allow us to hallow the sanctity of bodies and communities and those most intimate and proximate relationships. But it really would take a preparedness of many of our political and moral uh, discourses to shake off their brand, to lose their messaging, to be able to abandon the commercials that attend them both. I mean, that sounds right, absolutely right to me, Scott. I mean, in in the study that I've written, I mean, I, I work again with these sort of wartime figures in the UK, and um, one of them is Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poet. Um, and Thomas always you know, would get letters from people saying, oh, I've written a poem. You know, have a look and tell me what you think. Uh, or I've written a short story. You know, can you give me your comments? And the one thing that he would always say is he says, look, if there's any abstractions in these, I'm not interested. You know, if you're like going to talk about human rights or you know, liberty or justice or like, I'm sure you mean well, but that you're not showing me the actual feelings, emotions, you know, places that people care about, the relationships they care about. You're not showing me reality. You're hiding reality behind big language because it makes you feel good. But I actually need to see the reality in order to care for those people, but also to know that you really mean what you say you mean, you know, because you might be uh, pretending that you're interested in good stuff. Um, but actually, you're just using this highfalutin language uh, as a legitimation, as an excuse for for things which really aren't very good, or you know, or, or wouldn't lead people to lead better lives. Um, and that sort of, uh, I just really love that. I mean, it really speaks to me from my time in politics that so many politicians have the sort of glib turn of phrase, you know, which signals some kind of virtue or makes people retweet it on Twitter or makes people feel momentarily good but doesn't really mean anything and actually might be used, you know, paradoxically uh, to disguise policy positions, which are actually pretty bad for lots of people. So, um, that, that we just need to call that out, I think, much more often than we do. Yes, I think that's, yes, I agree. The thing is, though, that abstractions rather do matter, don't they? I mean, take an abstraction like, uh, I don't know, the presumption of innocence. Um, this is the kind of thing you only really come to enjoy um, and when well, not enjoys the wrong word, come to like talking and thinking about when you toddle off to law school or something and and do one of those degrees that, you know, plies you with a whole series of abstract ideas. But it's nonetheless really, really important, right? I, I mean, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, that's that, that's the problem, isn't it? And that's the tension that you were talking about earlier on, which is that you don't want to get rid of the things that the abstractions are meant to indicate. So, you know, you don't want to get rid of anti-discrimination policy or, you know, freedom or liberties or human rights. You know, those things are absolutely crucial. But Thomas's point really wasn't that, that they are, um, you know, bad things or things we shouldn't care about. They're rather that because they matter so much, 
politicians invoke them all the time in ways which are sort of lazy or deceitful. Uh, and so his call essentially is like, let's just do much less of the talking about them uh, and more of the you know the real substance because that's how they're going to get protected in the longer term. And so you're absolutely right. It's got to be a balancing act and you've got to not be um, as glib as sometimes I might appear to be about things <laughs> which, you know, the big picture stuff, they really do matter those big picture things. But, okay, they, but you know, the, we can you know, we can talk about them too much when we actually don't really mean it. No, that that that's that's right. But just take take presumption of innocence. I mean, that is one of those pillar principles that, as Dewey would put it, kind of creates the conditions within which a certain form of meaningful human life is possible. But I guess the point then would be, even something like presumption of innocence in a time of rampant mass circulated contempt for people who are found guilty out of hand or out of trial, I, I guess presumption of innocence then needs to be something that is given, for want of a better term, every day or even aesthetic form. It has to be imagined then. It has to be given a form that can be, that can be given a degree of purchase in people's moral registers and not just – so here's where, say, a poem or, say, a very, very great novel or, dare I say, even a very fine short-form television series could be vital in actually giving some substance, some everyday substance to a high principle like presumption of innocence, whereas simply rehearsing the principle but allowing a degree of everyday contemptuousness for criminality, those are the two things, I guess, that don't really gel. Yeah, but see, the things you've identified there are, are quite fickle things, aren't they? I mean, if, if, for example, you want to buttress something like the presumption of innocence with great storytelling, well, there's probably better storytelling to be told from the perspective of opposing the presumption of innocence. Yes, that's um, right. Because the story of someone who is clearly guilty but you just can't prove it is a very gripping story. I mean, it's probably at the heart of most of the most enjoyed dramas on television in the past however many decades. So this this, this is where I, hmm, I, I... Let me confess, I come into this show deeply sympathetic to the idea that um, there's an overemphasis on abstraction and not enough emphasis on the local and the particular, which is why I find myself attracted to conservative political philosophy. But I, but I have these worries that if you lean too much on these sorts of ideas, actually what you can be doing is undoing the very foundations that make social life tolerable, much less enjoyable, right? So, you know, these things can be used in all kinds of promiscuous ways. And what I fear are, are the principles by which we can police that. Well, sorry, I don't fear those principles. I, I, I fear the absence of those principles. I, I think that's right, that we, you don't want a society where those principles aren't taken you know, extraordinarily seriously and aren't you know, sort of protected and entrenched. I think the, the challenge, though, is that if we just bang on about them all the time, then they lose their sort of magic luster and they become held in contempt by people in a way which then creates the opportunity for your sort of Trump-like reaction. You know, so when we talk about, you know, the things which really do matter all the time in an overly casual way and in, often in a quite empty way, then they fall into disrepute. Um, and then it's possible for your Trumps of the world to come along and say, 
this is just all elitist, you know, sort of empty talk, which is meant to disguise, you know, the status quo or meant to like enable people to pretend that they're cleverer or better than you. Yeah. And then you get this sort of populist rage, you know. Uh, and I think we've seen an awful lot of that, basically, you know. And you know, Twitter is the worst of it, if I'm honest. You know, it's just like it's so easy to tweet sort of meaningless abstractions which make people feel good about themselves. And then it's quite so easy on the on the other side to to point that out and to denounce it in a way which kind of creates energy for the rabble or for the you know for the rejection of those principles. And I think you know what 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 I'm kind of calling for is now hold on a minute. We just we've got to hold those abstractions back. You know, which doesn't mean never use them. It just means use them properly uh, and you know more occasionally uh, and allow people to you know talk most of the time like normal people talk, ordinary people talk <laughs> about the things that matter to them. Yeah. And like that's where our politics has gone astray. It's like everything is about social justice or about liberty or about human rights, you know. Uh, and of course, once you use the abstractions that frequently and that emptily, they come to mean nothing. As I say, they fall into disrepute and then they can't do the vital work that we need them to do, which you've you know, described so well. So you've, you've drawn me to an area now, which I'm loath to raise because we have about a minute left and this is at least a 30-minute conversation. But Mike, what I'm trying to... Um, Globalisation really drastically complicates this, doesn't it? Because, you know, I, I think about the what, what globalization really is, is the expansion of an abstract principle or a series of abstract principles such that it does really invade the lives of individual people. And so it becomes very difficult, I think, in that sort of environment to preserve the meaning of those things because actually all kinds of abstract forces are now descending upon you, whether it be corporate decision-making in far-off lands or it be political ideas that undergird free trade or undergird human rights or it be globalised culture in the form of, um, you know, television series or, you know, music or, or, or whatever. It, I think there's this tension here that we perhaps have paid insufficient attention to between the particularity of the things we like and the way in which the the huge gravitational forces that affect our politics and by through our politics and our economics, our lives, are sort of doing their best to wash away those particularities. And I wonder if in any circumstance, in that sort of circumstance, anything other than a kind of um, populist nativist sort of reassertion of particularity is possible. I, I mean, I think the globalisation challenge is yeah, the most profound and Sadly, what happened was that the you know, the sort of advocates of globalization from both the left and the right, you know, 30, 40 years ago, they didn't see this coming. I mean, that was their huge error. I mean, the Tony Blairs of the world thought everyone's going to forget their particulars and their locals. We're all going to become, you know, sort of free floating people who connect with each other across boundaries. And they saw that as a, a liberation from the past and from culture and from community. Whereas, in fact, what so many people around the world have said is, well, hold on a minute, this is just moving 
moving in a way that I don't want it to move because I'm losing touch with things which really matter to me. Uh, and again, because the you know the sort of good forces of politics, if you like, absented the field, that lay, left it open for the nastier, you know, pl- you know, populist, you know, sort of ethnocentric uh, sort of forces to move in. But I'm hopeful that there is a kind of progressive particularism um, that can op- you know, occupy that space and that we might be seeing glimmerings of that. You know, I'm really struck that the Joe Biden campaign, for example, um, its slogan, you know, was restore the soul of America. Uh, and I'm really intrigued by that because when I was in politics, there's no way a political strategist would have let you get away with a slogan like that because they would have said, look, it doesn't, you know, it's just like, what does it really mean? It seems like sort of too spiritual. It seems seem, seems too sentimental. You know, it's not about, you know, uh, the kind of things that politics should be about. But actually, the way that Biden ran that campaign was to say, look, look, I can be one of the good guys. I can be progressive, but I can also be from around here. You know, and I can have an idiom and a style which is distinct, uh, you know, kind of local, uh, a little bit old fashioned even. Mm. And that worked in American politics, the combination of progressivism on the one hand and kind of localism on the other. Uh, And I do think that's the space that, you know, know, progressive politics globally needs to move into. Um, Yeah, yes, committed to some big picture things, human rights, social justice, but also finding a way of talking about them, which resonates locally, which honors people's customs, traditions, communities and neighborhoods. And if we can get that space right, you know, we can protect all kinds of things and, and, and also kind of move forward. You say it worked and I know what you mean. I wonder whether actually the verdict has to wait because we see ultimately how sustainable that is over a political cycle or two or three or a generation. Fair enough. I think that's right. I mean, early steps and, uh, you know, we have to see it work in different contexts with different kind of leaders as well as in one place with, you know, yes. with one candidate. Yes. It didn't lose though, I think, which is the starting point <laughs> of what you're describing. Um, Mark, uh, it's been a joy. It's uh, one of those shows once. We've had a few lately, actually, which I'd really rather just kept going. Alas, we don't have that choice. But thanks so much for helping us out today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Professor Mark Steers was our guest this week on The Mindfield, Director of the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. We're now at an end, but we'll be back next week. We'll see you then. listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.